Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Welcome and many thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design today. We're really excited to be joined by Dom Higgins, who is the Head of Health and Education for the Wildlife Trust. Um, but quickly, before we launch into the podcast, uh, I just want to remind people that you can get a printed and an ebook version of the new Journal of Biophilic Design a magazine on our website, journalbiophilicdesign.com. Um, as this printed version is an eco-friendly version, it's uh, carbon neutral. And you can also buy um, versions on Amazon, uh, the on you can read it on your Kindle, and there's a paperback and also a hardback version. So um, please do go along and support that, that'd be great. But in the meantime, hi Dom. And uh, I first saw Dom when I attended the NHS Forest Conference. In, yes, there is one. Um, and where he recently spoke about biomimicry, jellyfish, bulletproof Kevlar, um, amongst many things, um, which were completely fascinating. But he also did a call for policy change. Um, Dom, can you tell us about yourself and what got you interested in nature and wildlife and um, a little bit about your journey, please? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, first, thank you very much for having me, Ness. Um, I'm I'm one of those sort of accidental kind of entrants into the sector, I would say. Um, I'm not classically somebody who was really into wildlife, to be honest, as a as a child or anything like that. I'm a I'm a drama graduate, much more into showing off and acting and stuff. So I um I I I basically um kind of fell into this through I used to work in the gap year industry organizing kind of placements overseas um, and then when I was in Thailand I, I came across a, a turtle conservation project called uh, Golden Buddha Beach which was as amazing as it sounds but what was more amazing was the partnerships that they built up uh, with a UK organisation called uh, the British Trust for Conservation Volunteers, who I have never heard of. And uh, so I got back to UK and looked them up. And um, I spoke to one of their international team, uh, Anita, and the way that she described um, partnerships and the way that you build up the skills and capacity of uh, other organisations around the world um, it just kind of blew me away, really, and it, it made me realise that while there was probably some good in the work I was doing, it was largely market-driven and, and people who could pay to go off on placements and certainly those who were career-steppers. And uh, so I, I kind of looked them up, kept an eye on them and uh, applied for a job and, uh, and got it doing kind of uh, national youth volunteering programmes and that kind of stuff. So... Unusual route, uh, not the usual one, but I, I learn every day because I don't know, I didn't know a huge amount about wildlife. Well, you know lots now. Um, can you share with us, please, why for you it's important that we connect with nature um, on a personal level? Yeah, there's a number of things around that. Um, there's, there's something intrinsic in all of us, uh, and I'm no doubt you've, you've covered this many times, but you've just got to trust how you feel when you get outside. Uh, it's a personal thing, certainly, if, you know, some people uh, feel it in the woodlands, some if you just kind of step out into the wind, uh, others you might just be looking at um, something poking out of the pavement and just really focusing in on it. But there's there's something absolutely in our makeup uh, that takes us back to really what we're about as humans. And I think 
the way I understand it, and it's been explained to me before, is around, um, you know, we need we need three things really for good health and well-being. One is this kind of um, sense of a purpose, uh, and that you you have meaning to your life, and you can see that in some of the pathways to nature connectedness. Some great research there. The second is around um, having an active environment. Uh, so, um, and I think this probably goes back to when we were hunter gatherers. The fact that um, if you um, if you move people inside and you remain stationary, then you 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 have the perfect ingredients for kind of stress, really. Uh, because what we should be doing is being outside, you know, away from artificial lights and those sorts of things. So there's there's definitely uh, uh, something around that. And then the, the third thing, because we are those kind of pack animals, is is those social connections. Mm. So it's people, place and purpose. I think if you take any one of those away, then you've got the ingredients for uh, what we recognise as modern stress or chronic stress mm. uh, and all of those things that mm. could happen physically to us and mentally mm. i mean you've, you've touched on that what, what happens to our health if we don't connect i mean what happens um as well you know to our to our planet and wildlife if we if we choose or we don't connect with nature it, there's that growing sense of um if you if you have a, it's often referred to as nature connectedness but i think it's quite a hard concept particularly if you're working in a kind of more hard-nosed policy areas like i sometimes find myself in um but it's it, it is a feeling it's a feeling of um what is going on in the world it's a feeling of understanding that you're part of something bigger of and and experts and people who are qualified in this may look at, at, at ecosystems or interrelations but if you if you don't have that kind of daily thought or that kind of sense of knowing that everything has a place and it's connected back to pretty much everything you do essentially our life support system mm. you, you if you look today you, you you look at some of the decisions being taken around the world uh both here and abroad and you think you wouldn't take that decision you wouldn't make it if you had that that feeling, that sense of connectedness and that understanding, right? because there's perfectly valid ways to grow economically or uh, create fair and sustainable employment and those sorts of things. And maybe that's not what people's drivers are, um, but that's a different conversation. But really, if you if you don't have that innate within you mm. and that might come from daily kind of playing out that we used to do, it might come from a kind of a um uh, watching something on on tv is perfectly valid if you you know it's absolutely or, or getting that understanding but really um from the food you eat to the way you travel to the uh, water you drink to the air you breathe and all those sorts of things if you don't have that kind of um uh that sense at, the, at your core um then yeah the planet and and therefore our health is doomed because, um, you know, whether that's to do with um, not being physically active or whether it's not through that connection with biodiversity or it's not through kind of joining like-minded groups of people or if it's just understanding 
the meaning in nature, all of those sorts of things, then, you know, you, um, you, there's a deficit, I think, as it's sometimes described. And it, you know, it, it, it can't help but have an impact mm. on both you kind of psychologically uh, as well as kind of you know physically if you're if, if you're not connecting in that sort of way yeah um i mean in your talk for the nhs in you know in the nhs forest conference um you advocate that recovery of nature must be done by people um what mm. you know obviously i mean yes it's, it's, it's obvious that that's what we should do um you know but how do we get people to act how do we get people to act how do we I mean, I'm saying it's obvious. It was obvious that probably most of our listeners, because we're probably on that side mm -hmm. of things, rather than just thinking, oh, it's fine, we'll just shut the door and, and let the animals and, and the wildlife and the plants and things get on with it. We do need intervention um, and we need positive act action. Um, but how do you, I know it's, the, you know, what's the vision of the of the Wildlife Trust? And, you know, maybe what's your personal vision as well? You know, and what, what do you feel about it? Yeah, it's interesting because you, you, you say you, you say it's obvious and and to me and it's great that it that it is to you but i think um my starting point is is where we are on this journey and what the reports and the, and the evidence is telling us and if you look at any of the indicators whether it's kind of uh state of nature from rspb uh wwf worldwide surveys about kind of uh species that we've had recently um looking at levels of disconnection that drop off in our kind of you know it's all pointing the wrong way mm. and you know if you look at what we're baked in now in terms of climate change pretty much saying it's two degrees we can't you know that's where you have catastrophic changes and major changes depending on where you are in the world to the way that uh, the natural environment behaves and works mm. and so um my starting point really is 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 it hasn't worked um to date there have been some great victories and some some great savings and reintroductions and those sorts of things but essentially we're still in that phase of pushing nature into ever smaller kind of protected pockets so when i talked about nature's recovery and when the wildlife trusts talk about nature's recovery it literally that it's it's reconnecting those systems so following those, uh, what some of you will heard of the Lawton principles of more, bigger, better and joined up. And if you, you, you've you got to kind of repair and, and basically give nature a chance. When you're adapting now to climate change, so let alone trying to mitigate it, but if you're adapting to it, um, it's going to be vital for, you know, uh, heat kind of uh, spots, providing cooling and shade there, carbon sinks. Um, you know, uh, cleaning the air in our cities and all sorts of really important ecosystem services. But actually, um, I think if you if you recognise that that hasn't worked to date, and you're largely looking at about a third of the population uh, in the UK, let's say, who have been concerned about this, and let's let's be honest, um, we know what the, who those third are. You know, it's largely kind of white and middle class big sweeping statement but that is where we are um you, you have to you have to undertake the the recovery of nature with communities diverse uh new voices people with fresh ideas and solutions 
people that could take it to unexpected places. So it's talked about in the stock exchange or the factories or the, you know, the taxis, whatever it might be. It just needs to become the business of everybody. And you can't do that if you carry on on that same trajectory, even if you just follow the very sensible kind of ecological guidances, because actually it's not working. Um, and so there's a there's a social justice side of this in terms of you know people's access to nature that's really important and you know but I think um, if you are looking at um, really recovering nature to the extent it needs to be so that it is a natural solution to climate change and we all get the health and well-being benefits it has to be hand in glove with people so to me it's two sides of the same coin so when I hear nature's recovery I automatically think that's loads of people who uh, we need to get in. But I, I don't think that's the automatic voice of lots of people in our sector, actually. Um, mm. But the Wildlife Trusts do have that embedded in our in our three strategic goals, which is kind of nature's recovery is one. Uh, so 30% of land and sea in recovery by 2030. Uh, two is one in four people taking action for nature or climate change. That clearly says we can't do it alone. You know, we're not going to do that. So partnerships, new communities, new voices. So that's a huge culture change and listening program and the third goal is what we're talking about today it's around demonstrating societal value uh, uh, that nature has and those kind of what people call nature-based solutions to climate change or in this case to uh, our health and social care challenges yeah, absolutely and i think that's what's sort of excited me when i when i was starting to explore biophilic design i mean because I'm, I'm not a designer but when i started learning about the principle um it just it just sort of it it ticked a huge box to be able to access um people who are involved in construction building design um architects you know town planners um city planners urban planners um if we can use you know from from at that point of view by using the term biophilic design do you know what i mean it's actually reconnecting our love of nature and our inherent need to be surrounded by nature as like one of the main sort of um uh, design goals um, that they use in order then to be able to cascade a whole kind of bunch of stuff that will help. So like you just mentioned, you know, so you've got the bit biodiversity, ecodiversity, but you've also got, you know, the social equity side of things that people have poor people, everybody from every community be able to have access to trees and a park near where they live so they then um because there's also been studies that if you're surrounded by greenery if you're surrounded by nature and you're surrounded by trees and plants and stuff you're going to act in a more sustainable way which then will obviously encourage people to then get more involved in cleanups and planting and trees and respect and therefore not you know put asphalt in their driveways and all that stuff you know um so um yeah i'm i'm, ex I'm excited about there's more and more voices in this side of things um, who are really advocating sustainable building practices and using localized construction materials as well. I was just on the COP27 uh, conference um, just now um, for the launching, they were launching the building, the uh, the global status report for building construction. And there was a lady on there mm. who was talking about localized uh, construction, you know, and how we use local materials, um, which I, I just think this is definitely the way to go, but we need to have that on a policy level globally. You know to help people try and hit that 2050 target which at the moment is way off as you, as you know as you know it's off the scale so yeah no I, I totally agree with that and i think if you um not only is it about kind of building with nature and uh local materials and those sorts of things but you know you've got influential bodies such as um i think it's uk health alliance mm. came out last week 
uh, basically calling on the UK to um, stop subsidising fossil fuels, reduce air pollution. But actually, uh, I think it said create equitable access to green space uh, uh, brackets by prioritising protection and development, high quality nature, but within 10 minutes of everybody. You know, so um, I think if you, you know, and there they used the example of a local park, but there are things you can do in buildings to actually yeah. weave in uh, nature to the design, make mm -hmm. them much more resilient to climate change, but mm -hmm. also ensure that, yeah, within that 10 minutes of your house, if you're able to get out, you, it's there for you. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm one for saying you need to, although there's guidance and there has been for a while, it's actually legislation yeah. um you it's got to be mandatory otherwise there's always a cheaper way of doing it mm -hmm. um and that's not the way to do it so i think you've got to legislate for it and cost it yeah yeah because you can't it seems like we can't rely on people like doing the right thing it always comes no. down to money and it's not necessarily the people who are, who are like you know they've got good intentions but then it gets cut because people are looking at the bottom line and thinking oh is that going to but there's some there's there are cheap ways of doing things, you know. There's cost effective ways of, of bringing it in. It doesn't always have to be, you know, cost you know cost so much money really. Yeah. Um, but um, I mean, what tips would you give? I mean, people who are listening to this. I've got sort of teachers and doctors and healthcare workers and um, interior designers and and just you know families um, as well as well you know as well as architects and and um, MPs and, and people listening to this. But what advice would you give them to get engaged in the solution? You know, should they be lobbying people? Should they be actually actually going out and doing stuff, or or, or what? What or getting community groups up? What would you What would you sort of say for people to do? Yeah, it's it, it's interesting, and it's um. So if you take us back to that middle goal, I suppose, and and, and we feel that one in four uh, taking action for nature and climate is the way that the reason that there's a lot of kind of um campaigning evidence around that being a tipping point. So then the question becomes, what is meaningful? in terms of that action and really um you know i wouldn't i wouldn't want to um say to a certain profession or a certain kind of person in a scenario what it is i've got within of those professions that you mentioned there there are there are policy goals that i work towards but they're based in what i am told so i think what i start to do i always start with by listening mm -hmm. and um working out what those challenges are because it could be all very well if i say yeah green prescribing is great or blue prescribing is great let's all go and have a load of health problems but actually talking to doctors and health practitioners and people in the nhs and decision makers and budget holders for the estates will tell you any number of challenges whether that's to do with the kind of pests on hospital sites through to <laughs> patients saying no you are just trying to cut money this is what i want from you as my gp mm. and uh you prescribing a social thing is absolutely not the case mm. so if i speak to those doctors and they say um actually i'm sold on this and i think um it's a more a circular conversation i think rather than 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 tips for me because i because now there are plenty of gps for example who will say you know what, there is somebody that will benefit from a um, an, an activity that means they're socially connected, safe and physically or, 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 or mentally active. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can do that, I think within time, 
we will see an impact on our profession, freeing up the time to do what I need to do. We'll see a benefit for nature, um, that kind of premium on top of the of the health and social gains. Um, and if you times it all up across, you know, the hundreds of thousands of GPs across the country, then you you, you know it builds up to a big impact. So, um, and I know it's it's slightly different from uh, the question, but I think what action people take is 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 very kind of personal, and it's also down to their lives. And if if somebody for the first time in their life switches on a David Attenborough film and just has a think and think, oh my god, uh, and that's it for the year. <laughs> You know, some people will say, God, that's terrible. You got to go out and do this either. But I'd say, you know, where did they start that journey? You know, where did that come from? So I think you, you need to apply it. I think that could be immensely positive for lots of areas. Whereas I meet other campaigners who are, they send postcards to their MPs, they send them back to the GPs when they've been out doing kind of a, a group scribe saying, you know, this worked for me. That was fantastic. Uh, they go and meet their MPs and say, do you know what? The rule bill. 570 pieces of legislation coming in from Europe. That is a risk. Can't you see it's a risk? You're absolutely, you know, and they will just go, you know, all the way up. But I'm not who am I to say what's more meaningful than, than you know, one than the other. Mm. I think what is, if what's clear is the, the positive thing about that one in four means we, we're going to reach way more mm. uh, of the parts that the environment sector hasn't reached so far. So it's definitely got to be done with. with partners and organizations and businesses and I'm, you know, I'm quite hopeful in a way um so yeah yeah long answer yeah no it's, it's it's lovely because um yeah people I think people are more and more sensitive to nature and the wildlife and I think it has come all from like covid lockdown so it has reached parts that it might not have reached unfortunately it, you know fortunately in one way but unfortunately because of the cause of, of what it does but you know people getting out in nature and walking and realizing there's no park near me and then setting up like little you know putting plant pots near benches and all this sort of stuff to try and create a bit of greenery and a bit of beauty actually um in such a harsh yeah. environment if we think you know, particularly in the inner cities where it's all concrete and it's and it's and it's gray and there's no color and there's no life um you know we we so need to be we so need it and, and in schools as well you know we need that those views of windows and stuff there's all this research um that's been proven that you know we we study better if we got views of nature so actually from an educational point of view is better healthcare as well we get out of hospitals quicker you know i mean i'm, I'm sort of preaching to the converted here but it, you know there's there's all these things that if people are interested in it, they can kind of go off and research about it and then get involved in it. You know, um, as you said, there's not one size fits all and, and there's no, no need to be prescriptive or anything. It's actually what's, and I love that what you just said about something that fits into their lives. You know, if, if it calls to them and it's the right time um, and there's an opportunity, um, then go for it, go do it. Because um, everybody, you feel better for it as well if you feel like you're helping um, too, don't you? And, and yeah. the community aspect. So. You do, and and that's the kind of cultural change going on at the Wildlife Trust. If you look at this approach we're calling Team Wilder, mm. people's um, entry points or gateways into this world, this sector, like environment sector, whatever you want to call it, or just being connected to nature, will come in many forms. Mm. Um, and and you know, I will have colleagues that will hold their hands up in horror and say, you know, it could be a few barbecues somewhere, you know, or it could be a a, um, a bike trail. Yeah. Uh, or it could be, you know, and it's just like you, that's the place to start the conversation. I once spoke to a very wise public health uh, professional 
who for the first two weeks as they were starting the job goes, what do you, you know, what, what, what's your first month? You know, you get, what's your first week? What's your first two? What's your month? Basically said, yeah, I'm going to go and uh, go into the shops, the supermarkets, the pubs, the bars, betting shops, uh, and I'm going to listen. And I'm just going to um, tap into actually what it's like to live here and what people are saying and what's missing and those kind of things. I think, how refreshing is that from a very kind of super qualified epidemiologist and actually they're just going to go out and listen to people's lives where they are um i think we could do with a lot more of that mm, absolutely um going back on the education sort of aspects of things um i'm going to ask you something to lighten it up in a minute just at the end you know kind of mm. um but there's a new natural history gch gcs i'll say that again a new natural history gcse and um, it's going to obviously tackle this 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 issue um of the loss of nature and our connection to it um you've um you're obviously been involved in this haven't you mm-hmm. um and you're advocating it uh can you tell us about can you can you tell us a bit about can you kind of sort of set the scene a little bit can you tell us what this um this natural history gcse will kind of cover who it's aimed at um is it live you know now sort of thing as well so yeah yeah so i think i think if, if listeners um you know um want to make sure it gets over the line uh, then um, there's still work to be done. So particularly, uh, you know, if you are in touch with your MP or you want to write part for education, or if you visit wildlife trusts and have a look at their postcard campaign, you know, you can you can say how important it is because at the moment it's on a first teach of September 2025. We got the okay for a GCSE in natural history, and that was um, by the. Uh, Schools Minister, I have lost count, but it was when Robin Walker was in post uh, and it was announced along with, in England this is, the Department for Education's Climate Change and Sustainability Strategy. And within that, it says there will be a a new GCSE, first one in a good 20 odd years, in natural history. And um, in order for it, it does seem a way off, but that is the earliest it can be because there are a number of things that now the Department for Education have to do uh with Ofqual in order to get the syllabus uh the marking schemes get an agreement look at who's going to teach it all of the really important detailed stuff so i suppose i have to kick off so yes it's there it's a commitment but as we've seen it can mean very little until we've seen it absolutely writing so not there yet so yeah i was on the advisory group my colleague is now uh, and i'm working with um Oxford Cambridge RSA, who are the examination board for that, who are behind the Natural History GCSE, but also a much wider and possibly not more, but equally as important, wider greening mm. and bluing of the whole curriculum yeah. uh, and in the run up to that. So, so what I mean, what would it bring to the party? So a deeper understanding of the interconnectedness of the natural world, the stuff that we've been talking about. So urban, rural, coastal and the global context. So it, it kind of, you know, because people might look and say, well, there's geography and there's biology, but it's that kind of, that space in between, the in-depth knowledge of the taxonomy and going out and close-up observation, getting dirty, getting outside the classroom, looking at animals and plants and all those kind of things. So really applying critical research skills, uh, observation, identification, classification, uh, but also if you zoom out then, tying that to real world solutions to climate change 
looking at a, not just a UK or a Western centric view of that, but actually saying, you know, what are the impacts of the world, but what are the kind of, uh, what's the thinking and the processes and the solutions in other parts of the world uh, where you kind of mitigate climate change, but also how you start to adapt to it. So it's taking the interconnection of all those kind of uh, ecosystems, but going way back to natural history, checking the roots of all of those things, learning them in depth and then applying to the modern world. And, and there's a real kind of um, dearth of those. I mean, and the person behind it, it'd be very remiss not to mention it, it's Mary Colwell. Mm. She has been driving this uh, for years. Um, and uh, formerly of the BBC Natural History Unit, uh, you know, the question, you know, when you look at it, you're looking at one, where are the naturalists and what's the diversity of the naturalists coming through? Where, you know, where is that interest? Where is our next kind of, uh, you know, leader on these sorts of massively important issues? Um, and if you, you haven't got that kind of it's a critical point, isn't it, the GCSE in your kind of education, because it's the time that takes you up to that point where you, you have to be in education. You don't have to obviously take this GCSE yet. It's not a core subject. That's perhaps something to aim for beyond. Um, so so in, in the moment, you're thinking, OK, it could be 30 to 40,000 people, about the same level as sociology, one of those kind of yeah. subjects on the side. I think what we need to do is establish it and then absolutely rocket fuel it up to, you know, kind of getting it into core. And, 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 and therefore, um, so, yeah, it, it's still in the mix. It's not over the line. I think the 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 routes up to that and the pathway towards that GCSE as you go through key stages one, two, and three, you know, it's no surprise that you lose that nature connection at 13 because, it, you know, you are, it, it, it is easier to get children outside of primary. There's no space in the primary curriculum. Uh, there's kind of less fear in the teachers. There's probably less safety concerns and those sorts of things. Um, but actually what you need to do is, is thread knowledge as well as that experience yeah. so it really hammers it home so you give people you open their eyes and think do you know what if i am interested in this sort of thing this is the uh, exactly the type of subject that i would want to take and then from there you go um so it's um you know a massive consultation went ahead there was 2000 plus young people that fed into that as well so it's a really well uh, uh um informed consultation process um, if, if you're, yeah, if the listeners can look at the uh, Department for, for Education's Climate and Sustainability uh, Strategy uh, and the GCSE in that, let's let's keep on it. I th I'm, I'm pretty hopeful it will still be on that first teach of 2025. Um, and then we get the exciting thing of building the curriculum with our partners and 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 taking that learning outside and just experiencing it. I think it'll have a massive difference. That's great. I mean, I, I, when you said there about, you know, it's experience, but the key thing there was you said, you know, thread the knowledge through the, you know, and the experience. So it's great mm -hmm. going out and experiencing the trees and nature and looking and observing, but actually understanding, you know, how mycelium work and how, you know, root connections and all this sort of stuff and get people, you know, there's lots and lots of like things on YouTube and there's like things on films and, and you know, and, and you know, all, all the all the sort of channels that we look at now, there's more and more stuff coming in. And I think, is becoming more accessible but I mean gosh I mean I would have loved that when I was at, when I was a student do you know what I mean to really you know I mean go outside and enjoy nature anyway which is lovely we never I never had that opportunity I was in a, in a city in London 
actually to go out and learn about it. I mean, I was I was a real nerd anyway. But I mean, you know, there's there are kids who will just just really get off on the fact that, gosh, that's how that's connected to this. And, you know, there's all the sort of diversity and how things are dependent on each other. And then we'll become, you know, that'll filter down as well into like, you know, respecting each other as well, because we're all interdependent as well. You know, so there's like loads of things that you could bring in on an interdisciplinary level as well. I love it. I think it's brilliant. I'm actually interviewing Mary, um, Mary Corwell in January. So um, I'd be yes. interested to hear her background story and where she's come from, because I know she's interested in curlews as well, isn't she? So um, I yes. love curlews. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, she is indeed. And uh, and is, is quite a force. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And I think I think what's the other thing because obviously Mary uh, who will tell you about the kind of concerns she has around naturalists and, and would say that much better for me I um you know I'm surrounded by colleagues particularly in the policy area who will look at the latest threat to farming clean rivers and water yeah. the seas fishing yeah. stocks our <laughs> soils the future yeah. of food the list goes on and on and on and on and think actually these are because decisions are being made. So what we need is the next generation to go through this so that in 30 years' time, people in our positions will not be fighting this nonsense. Actually, because nobody would make that decision because they've been through a totally different education. So that's why it's really vital. I agree. And just on, on that sort of note, if there's, you know, um, if someone's listening to this and if you got, because I know you, on, on that NHS Forest Conference, you spoke about various bits and bobs, like jellyfish and all sorts of things. Can you kind of like give us um, just like a really odd, um, odd sort of fact about something random? Yeah. They're going to go, oh, and they can take oh, it down loads. the pub. <laughs> they can take it down the pub with them tonight. So. <laughs> I mean, to me, I mean, yeah, the the, the jellyfish one you you use. So they use they use uh, GFP, don't they? So um, green fluorescent proteins as markers in X-rays. Uh, you see those amazing uh, jellyfish. But uh, my 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 favourite really is the cone snail, which are these kind of um, uh, amazing creatures. And what they've got is um, very very precise uh, kind of weapon that um paralyzes its prey and, and with just the kind of right amount of kind of poison um and and that um i think they're called peptides or conopeptides it's been um kind of taken and and worked up into non-addictive anesthetics uh, mm. and so if you can imagine the kind of because it's so targeted and so effective uh you know, it, it, it's got all of those sorts of properties and particularly where you're looking at that kind of non-addictive side, it's really important. Um, yeah. And um, these these kind of peptides, uh, you know, I think we've looked at 0.0004% of them across the cone snails population. Um, and um, so you can imagine the huge potential and there's, there's so many other kind of um, amazing animals and, and what they bring. But if you if you think about that potential and how we could be in harmony with nature and those sorts of things, if I then tell you that their habitat is coral reefs, then I think we see the problem here, um, you know, with bleaching and the, you know, through the temperature rise and those sorts of things. Um, so, I, I, you know, it, it, that's one of my favourites. And, and the, the other reason it's really one of my kind of favourites is because it was, um, I first learned about it from an amazing guy called David Pension, 
who used to head up the NHS's sustainability and uh, sustainable development unit. Okay. So it's from a healthcare point of view, and he used to wax lyrical about the cone snails at a lot of his conferences. So it's it's not. I didn't learn that from a naturalist. Uh, <laughs> I learned that from a health professional. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, I'm going to have to look that up. I, I remember you mentioning it, and it's it's a really beautiful snail. It's a it's got mm. a lot. It's, it's it's a really interesting shaped um, creature. So um, I'll put a picture on our website, the Journal of Biophilicdesign.com, alongside this podcast. So if people are listening, they can they can pop along. Um, they can obviously Google it, but they can also pop along to the website and have a look there. Um, so before I ask you the final uh, question, Dom, um, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Um, I think at this point, um, we haven't really touched on um, on kind of nature prescribing and, and the current kind of um, trials in that area. And I think it's really interesting. So social prescribing is the broad policy. I think in some way it's quite problematic in terms of people to understand, but it's it's one of those terms that's well used around the world. And it's, it's basically community-based or place-based approach to health. And I think if we're going to stop the NHS in this country falling over, we've got to do things different. And that means, I think we said earlier on, if you can connect people to social activities where you're physically active, socially active, safe, uh, you know, in the company of others, it could be anything. And um, then, it, you know, you're much less likely to go to a GP for a social need or to turn up an A&E because you need to see a human. Uh, and and a lot of this is loneliness driven. Um, if we look across the natural environment and arts in terms of you know cinema, theatre, music, all those kind of things, um, and and sport and physical activity and games and those sorts of things, different kind of clubs. If you look at what they bring, um, then the theory goes that um, if you are connected to those you're less likely to go and um, to a healthcare professional for uh, a social kind of purpose. So I think, you know, there's a, it's a really good argument in that. And I think if you talk to GPs from them, you know, if you look at the stats up to a third or up to a quarter, they would say of their um, appointments are unnecessary because it's in those terms. And it, it's something that works alongside and complements mainstream healthcare. So you've got, People, it's very important that people take their medication and they follow their GP's instructions and those sorts of things. However, the early signs of green prescribing are showing that you can have a really positive impact on uh, the number of people going to GPs, the number of people turning up at A&E, people staying well if they've got on the elective list, it's really growing. Um, and I think, um, you know, the green prescribing for mental health pilots are on at the moment. They started two years ago. First year was largely COVID interrupted. So we're at quite a critical point in those. And I think what we need are for those kind of trials to continue for at least the next two years. So we can actually pick out some of those data and actually show how we take the weight out of the health system. Um, and, and as we are here talking about biophilia and those uh, kind of importance of, of recovering nature, that is one of the added benefits of this. It's not only about kind of staying well and staying healthy but it's also about uh biodiversity creating accessible places where people live uh and um 
you know, driving organizations to work in specific places where it will have the most reach for people's health, but also the most in terms of creating access. Because if you do create access in those areas where people have the poorest health outcomes, all the evidence shows that you're going to have the greatest impact. I think if you if you do that in kind of medium to well-off places where health outcomes are okay, it's not going to have a massive impact. And it's not really surprising, but there is evidence pointing that way. So I think we're at a really interesting time. There is a kind of a, a question mark over the whole prescribing thing because you don't want it to be a kind of a, a cost-cutting exercise for health services and put onto the um, civil society or charitable sector. But equally so, it makes a hell of a lot of sense for uh, all the things we've been talking about today in terms of diversifying the number of voices that are going to fight for nature recovery by showing its relevance and its beneficial uh, kind of impact um, and and just another one of those interesting gate points into the environment sector that is not via the usual degree studied it volunteered for a while because you were well supported and you get a job uh, we need to break that down so it's really important that's great thank you um i think I'm, i've told you before but I, I wanted to bring a policy change um uh, obviously at government level but to bring biophilic design into the nhs like into every nhs like as a whole thing so that that's in every so in every retrofit everything so there's views of nature people have got that there's better acoustics all those different aspects of like bringing nature and elements and patterns of nature inside you know everything from colorways to plants to you know views of of nature to soundscapes and um, visual you know visual representations if they can't cut a hole in the wall we know that you know they can recover faster i just want everybody whatever much however much money they've got i want them to all have a great um, experience and a healing experience in nature um in in healthcare and and that has to be done through it, it, you know it's enhanced through a connection to nature so um yeah anyway <laughs> we'll see how that, it goes. i think that's brilliant and if you look at actually um because you know that's really effective and really important if you look at the way they redesigned the mm. older hay children's hospital yeah it turned the thing on its axis and they they did a massive consultation program with the key people, i.e. the children who are in there for horrendous reasons and procedures. Yeah. What's most important? Yeah. Outdoor facing rooms, away from the operating rooms, windows that open out into the park, because it used to face the car park and now the three ways face right into the small green space. And lo and behold, there are long wings that come right out of that older Hills hospital right into the space. Mm. needs to tell everything you need to know it's in that case then. fantastic well we've uh, we've come to the end so i have to ask you the final question that i ask everybody on this podcast if you could paint the world with a magic brush of biophilia what would it look like dom oh my word and it's such a um it's such an interesting uh question quite a challenging one if i was to go very personally on this um so I'm not sure about painting the world, but I always have a love of jumping into uh, uh, bodies of water. Uh, so <laughs> I think it would definitely be um, very watery, uh, whether that's kind of brown bubbling stuff that, you know, I used to jump into the River Ribble as a kid, one of my favourite rivers, uh, or, or whether it's some of those chalk streams you see down in Hampshire or, or, or beautiful, clear kind of crystal seas, or those kind of, you know... Um, messy pebbly sandy surf that kind of pummel you around i just love it all 
So I think we've got quite a lot of blue on the planet already. So I'm, 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 you know, personally from that point of view, I think that's where I go. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.